0: The Four Gospels, Chapter 6 by Samuel Ridout, Part 1. Chapter 6. Part 1. Analysis of each Gospel. In taking up the analysis of each evangelist,
1: we are reminded that already, in our frequent surveys in previous chapters, we have gone over a large part of the ground ordinarily covered in an analytical outline. There must necessarily be a certain amount of repetition which is not out of place, for truths so precious will admit of restatement, and we cannot grow too familiar with the contents of each of the Gospels. On the other hand, the minuteness of examination, especially in chapter 3, will relieve us from going into similar details here. There, we discussed the object of each Gospel as seen. First, in its presentation of the life of Christ, in each of the Evangelists, second, the nature of His death, and third, his resurrection. We therefore now confine ourselves to giving an outline of the main divisions and subdivisions of each book. We will first state the general theme and follow this with the analysis, asterisk. Asterisk the divisions and subdivisions of the four gospels given in this chapter are taken almost entirely from the notes on each gospel in the numerical Bible. The same remark would apply to the discussion of the numerical structure and order of the books in chapters 4 and 5. The writer has been privileged to know intimately the beloved author of this most helpful work and to enter somewhat at least into his thoughts regarding the numerical structure of Scripture. He feels, therefore, perfectly free to use the results of the prayerful labor of another, thankfully acknowledging his indebtedness. If these divisions are, as is manifestly the case, the true ones, there could be no alteration or improvement upon them. In noting the various divisions, the present writer has given other designations than those in the Numerical Bible. It is trusted that these will furnish a wider basis for examination, and be
0: confirmatory of the correctness of the divisions. Matthew General theme, Christ as King, foretold,
1: anointed, announcing His kingdom, showing its works, refused by his subjects, declaring the form of his kingdom during his absence as committed to the hands of men, until he displays it in its final glory at his second coming, this glory resting upon his meeting every requirement of divine justice as to the sin and trespass of his subjects. Division 1. Chapters 1 and 2. The Genealogy and Birth of the King. Division 2. Chapters 3, 7. The king announced, anointed, and declaring his constitution. Division 3 Chapters 8, 12 The display of the kingdom in its sufficiency for man, but of man's unfitness for the kingdom. Division 4 Chapters 13, 2028 The kingdom of an absent king entrusted to the hands of men. Division 5 Chapters 20, 29 23 the triumphal entry of the king seen as rejected by the leaders and he rejecting them. Division 6. Chapters 24, 25. The coming of the king in final glory announced in reference to Israel, he church and the world. Division 7. Chapters 26, 28. The king crowned with thorns, and by his death and resurrection making good all his purposes of blessing for his kingdom and the world. These are the main divisions which we will now take up in order and give a brief summary of the contents of each, with the subdivisions and sections into which they group themselves.
0: Division 1. Chapters 1 and 2. The Genealogy and Birth of the King. We have in this first
1: division, the introductory history of our Lord as King. It is divided into two main subdivisions, chapters 1 and 2. The general theme is the King as promised, and as come, with the prophecies fulfilled in connection with his
0: birth. Subdivision 1. Chapter 1. The King's Descent and Divine Predictions.
1: Our Lord is identified as the king foretold in the promises to Abraham and to David, together with the special prophecies which foretold his birth. The chapter divides into two parts. Verses 1-17 The Genealogy Our Lord is described as the son of David and the son of Abraham. The order is suggestive as showing the preeminence of the Davidic thought, the kingship, with the wider relationship suggested in his descent from Abraham, the father of all them that believe, and the one to whom the promise was given, in thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The genealogy is traced downward, indicating that close connection which we have already noticed with the Old Testament, and the unchanging purpose of God. The genealogy is divided into three parts, each having a characteristic feature peculiar to itself. From Abraham to David, promise is the prominent thought. From David, through Solomon, to the captivity, is a record of decline, and from the captivity to the birth of our Lord is a period of darkness, ending, however, as a resurrection in the birth of our Lord. The genealogy suggests many points for special study. Omissions are significant. The fourteen generations of each of the divisions is remarked by the evangelist, indicating, in its factors two by seven, the witness to the complete insufficiency of man to be the promised king. The presence of the names of four women in this genealogy has been commented upon as manifesting the grace of our Lord in associating Himself with the special needs of man. The first, the Mar, brings out the sin of man, the second, Rahab, the faith that lays hold upon the grace of God, the third, Ruth, that grace manifested in setting aside the claims of the law and the fourth the wife of Uriah Bathsheba the grace which through chastisement can even bring blessing out of failure in God's people verses 18 to 25 the birth of Jesus Emmanuel how jealously God has cared for the minutest particulars connected with the advent of his beloved son into the world subdivision 2 Chapter 2 The Visit of the Wise Men, and Related Events Verses 1-12 We have a foreshadow here of the gathering in of the Gentiles. The light of heaven, the star in the east, leads them to the babe at Bethlehem. Verses 13-18 The Flight into Egypt Here, two other prophecies are fulfilled, Out of Egypt have I called my son. The slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem fulfills a prophecy from Jeremiah. Verses 19-23, The Return to Nazareth Our Lord is here seen as the shoot of Jesse, a root out of a dry ground, as the word Nazareth suggests. Thus, in this first division, we have foreshadowed the rejection of Christ and His glory reaching out to the nations at large. Division 2. Chapters 3-7 the king announced, anointed, and declaring his constitution. In this division, we have the herald, John the Baptist, calling to repentance and preparing the way for the king, who on his appearing is baptized and anointed with the Holy Spirit for his royal work, then subjected to the moral assaults of his enemy. Coming forth unscathed, he proclaims the great moral principles of his kingdom which he had already illustrated in his own person. We give the subdivisions
0: of this important portion. Subdivision 1. Chapters 3, 4-11. The King Anointed.
1: Section 1. Verses 1-6, The Forerunner.
0: Section 2. Verses 7-12, Judgment Proclaimed. Section 3. Verses
1: 13-17, The King Baptized and Anointed. Section 4.
0: Chapter 4 colon 1-11. The Temptation. Subdivision 2. Chapter 4
1: colon 12-25. The Testimony of the King Himself. This brief subdivision gives us a summary of our Lord's earlier ministry in Galilee. Section 1. Verses 12-16, The Light in the Land of Zabulon and Nephthalim.
0: Section 2. Verses 17-22, The Call of the. Disciples. Section 3.
1: Verses 23-25, Preaching and Working Miracles. Subdivision 3. Chapters 5, 7. The Sermon on the Mount, The Moral Character of the Kingdom. A volume might be written upon this one discourse only in the briefest way we indicate its main features. The general theme is evident. His kingdom is not outward, but a moral one in which a mere legal righteousness will not avail, and where mercy as well as truth are indispensable. Section 1. Chapter 5, 1-16, The Beatitudes True Members of the Kingdom, the Salt of the Earth and the Light of the World. Section 2. Verses 17 48, The Law, the Old Covenant, compared with the spiritual principles of the kingdom. Section 3. Chapter 6 1 18, True righteousness in alms, prayer, and fasting. Section 4. Verses 19 34, Without carefulness in a world of care. Section 5. Chapter 7 1 14, consistency and dependence. Section 6. Verses 15-20, The Tree Known by Its Fruits. Section 7. Verses 21-29, The Conclusion and Application. Division 3. Chapters 8-11, The Display of the Kingdom in Its Sufficiency for Man and Man's Unfitness for the Kingdom the general character of this third division is suggested by its title. In it, we have the works of the king manifesting his power and goodness. In these works he associates with himself his disciples whom he sends forth with his charge. An opposition is developed, out of which he calls a remnant, and the separation between this remnant of faith and the mass of the ungodly nation reaches a climax in which the leaders are
0: rejected. The Subdivisions Follow Subdivision 1. Chapters 8, 926. The Activities of the King. We have here grouped
1: together a number of characteristic miracles manifesting the varied condition of the people and the suited grace to meet their need. These works may not all have taken place in immediate, consecutive order. Together, however, they display the power of the King and his tender grace. It is suggestive that the lofty moral principles were declared from the summit of the mount, while the actual condition of man is set forth, in the leper, at the foot. What we ought to be and what we are, are two different things. Grace meets us where and as we are, and brings us into conformity with the purpose of God. Section 1 Chapter 8 1 17 Abundant Works There is, no doubt, a moral order in the three acts of healing we have here, together with a summary at the close. The leprosy, 1-4, suggests the defilement of sin cleansed, the healing of the palsy, 5-13, the helplessness induced by sin removed, mercy for the Gentiles, the fever of Peter's wife's mother, 14, 15, recovering mercy for Israel, grace for every form of need, 16, 17. Section 2 Chapter 8 18-9, His Path and the Power to Walk in It. Our Lord here is seen departing to the other side of the lake, where he works a deliverance from the power of Satan, and returning again to his own city sets a captive free. The portions here are all suggestive, the path attesting 1, 18-22, and subject to storms, 23-27, the enemy is powerless in his presence, 28, the palsy removed. 9 1 8, is a sign of the power connected with his forgiveness. Section 3. Chapter 9 26, The Call of Publicans and Quickening of the Dead. The call of Matthew, himself a publican, 9 13, signalizes the gathering of many others like himself, objects of scorn to the Pharisees, together at our Lord's table. Thessalonians, 14 17, are the children of the bride-chamber who have the new wine of divine grace in the new bottles which that grace has prepared. For the proper enjoyment of this, there must be a divine work of quickening and cleansing, typified in the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead and the healing of the woman with an issue, 18-26. Subdivision 2 Chapters 927, 10 The king's messengers sent forth and charged. In this subdivision our Lord is seen still exercising His kingly prerogative of healing and deliverance, associating His twelve disciples with Himself in this blessed work. The main part of the chapter is devoted to the solemn prophetic charge which reaches far beyond the ministry upon which they there entered, and applies to the closing period just before the tribulation when the Lord's messengers shall again go forth. Section 1 Chapter 9 colon 27-34, The Son of David Two works here proclaim Him the true Messiah, the Son of David and King of Israel, the opening of the blind eyes, 27-31, and the casting out of the dumb demon, 32-34, both are symbolic of that work of grace which was effected in the remnant while our Lord was here and will be continued in the latter days. The enmity of the unbelieving mass is brought to a focus by this display of divine power, and they deliberately accuse him of casting out demons in the power of Satan.
0: Section 2. Chapter 935, 10, His Messengers. Our Lord's compassion
1: goes out toward the multitude and he sends forth his disciples, empowering them to work miracles of healing and to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the house of Israel. 9:35 to 10:15 This ministry of grace will meet with abundant opposition 16 to 23 He warns them of this and charges them that neither fear nor favor should cause them to swerve from the path of obedience to God and walking in his fear 24 to 33 The disciple must expect not peace but a sword and must be prepared to sacrifice the dearest earthly relationship where it conflicts with faithfulness to himself 34 to 38 The end is ever to be kept in view, with its sure reward, 39-42.
0: Subdivision 3. Chapter 11. The Remnant Manifested and Called Forth.
1: The effect of the proclamation of the truth and the manifestation of the King in his works of power is to separate from the unbelieving mass of the people a remnant which, feeble as its faith is, turns to the Lord and manifests itself among the babes to whom God makes His grace known. Section 1. Verses 1-15, John's Question and Our Lord's Testimony Shut up in prison, John seems to have suffered a temporary eclipse of faith. It is beautiful to see how loyal he is to the Lord, even under the darkness of doubt. If there are doubts, the one about whom he has questions is the only one who can solve them well is it for us when we bring our very doubts to the Lord Jesus. The Lord replies to this question of John, 1-6, by recounting the works which he had wrought, and with the delicate reproof, Blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me, to recall John to the strength of faith. If our Lord would thus rebuke his servant in secret, he publicly bears witness to him, 7-15, as the greatest of those born of women. Significantly, as being not in immediate association with our Lord, he is not spoken of as in the kingdom which was about to be set up. He was the greatest of the prophets, indeed the Elijah that was to come, but a place of greater privilege was that belonging to the Lord's disciples.
0: Section 1. Verses 6-24, The Unbelief of the Nation. Alas, the
1: mass of the people had no apprehension of the grace which had been brought to their very doors. Like children playing in the market, neither the preaching of repentance nor the works of grace by our Lord could move their cold hearts. They would neither mourn nor dance. The end of such unbelief must be judgment, it shall be more tolerable for the godless cities of the plain, and for Tyre and Sidon with their abominable idolatries, than for highly favoured Israel which rejects the light that had shone unto it.
0: Section 3 Verses 25-30 the babes, provided for. How preciously do the
1: words which follow here exemplify the grace of our Lord! No one can know the Father save as revealed by the Son, even as the Son also is known only to the Father, but wherever there are babes, those who have no high thoughts of themselves and are willing to receive the revelation, it is given to them. How then is one seen to be a babe? All who are weary and heavy-laden, who feel the burden of their sins, may be such and are welcome to come and find rest. Subdivision 4 Chapter 12 The Rejected King Rejecting His Apostate Subjects The opposition culminates in this chapter. Our Lord had patiently borne with unbelief so long as it indicated only blindness or indifference, but when it assumes the satanic form of open-eyed hatred of Himself and His Father, he can but pronounce the doom upon those who deliberately put themselves under the power of Satan. This is the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, against which he solemnly warns the guilty leaders. Section 1. Verses 1-13, The Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath It is interesting and profitable to trace throughout the Gospels the effect upon the Jews of our Lord's attitude toward the Sabbath day. In it he wrought miracles wherever there was need, and ever claimed that the entire spirit of the day was missed by those who would turn it into a matter of self-righteous formalism, instead of a delight and a day of liberty. The Sabbath has always been thus used by legalism. Even in the present dispensation, the so-called Christian Sabbath has been laden with legal prohibitions and ordinances. There are two prominent facts to be noted, the first, which we have already dwelt upon, that the true nature of the Sabbath is little apprehended, and the second, that even if the requirements as to this observance were kept in accord with the law, both letter and spirit, it was used by the people as though they had never broken that law. God gave Israel his Sabbath as separating them from all other nations. An observance of this holy day was a tacit acknowledgement of their subjection to the law of God in every particular and the intimation that they had kept that law perfectly. It was this which our Lord would press upon the people. They had no right to decorate themselves with a fancied obedience to the letter of the Sabbath. They were condemned by their sin, and what became them was an acknowledgment of that, rather than the going through of certain ceremonial observances. The two occurrences are, the disciples plucking and eating the ears of corn on the Sabbath day, verses 1-8, and, the healing of the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, Verses nine to thirteen, the first is the prerogative of mercy for God never fails to meet the need of his people. David thus ignored the priestly ordinance as to the showbread to meet the hunger of himself and his men, for it was a time of confusion in which part of the law having been ignored, the remainder of it must be in abeyance. Not only this, but the priests did work on the Sabbath day in order to offer sacrifices. They were blameless in this. Although, according to the legal reasoning of the Jews, they would have been guilty of a profanation. The Lord reminds them that he who gives the law is greater than the temple whose ritual they were so punctilious in observing, and that mercy and not sacrifice is what God delights in. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The man with the withered hand was like Israel, powerless to do ought aright. Of what value was the external keeping of the Sabbath when there was no power for God? Surely, if it is right to pull a fallen sheep out of the pit, it is better to heal a fallen man, by implication, the fallen people, had they only been ready for it. Section 2. Verses 14-21, to The Counsel to Destroy Him The Lord fully understands the relentless hatred which His treatment of the Sabbath would stir in the hearts of the Pharisees, and knows He must withdraw Himself from them. A change is noted at this point in his miracles, which are now wrought more in secret, and those who are healed are warned to say nothing about it. The shadow of the cross was falling across his path, and yet he goes forward in illustration of that word of the Prophet, Behold my servant, he should not fail nor be discouraged until he had brought forth judgment unto victory.
0: Section 3 Verses 22-32 The Blasphemy Against the Holy Ghost We have
1: already seen how the Pharisees had once before charged Him with casting out demons in the power of Satan. This is repeated more deliberately, and calls forth the final and awful warning we have here. Evidently, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is not, as has been supposed by many sensitive believers whose consciences have been tortured by the thought, that one has committed some known sin. Alas, who has been exempt from this? The true nature of this awful sin is that when the light was shining in full blaze before their very eyes, both in words of divine truth and wisdom and works of almighty grace, they should deliberately ascribe this energy of the Spirit in our Lord to the devil himself. What is left for those who call light darkness, who openly and willfully confound the Holy Ghost with Satan? The true nature, therefore, of the sin is manifest. It is never committed by those who turn to or have any desire for our Lord, and wherever the vilest sinner, the most dreadful blasphemer, turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will find, not this awful sin which never has forgiveness between him and the Saviour, but our Lord's blessed word ever true. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Section 4 Verses 33-50 to The Test Fully Applied. The remainder of the chapter, while easily falling into minuter divisions, develops our Lord's separative judgment upon his rejectors. The tree is known by its fruit, 33-37. The sign of Jonah was a call to them to repentance, and if they refuse to believe on him of whom Jonah was a type, the very men of Nineveh and the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment to condemn them. The evil spirit which they were fostering in their hearts, a spirit that led them into such dreadful blasphemy would later on take complete possession of them as we know he will in the last terrible days of the apostasy 43 to 45 the unclean spirit of idolatry had left them but later on would return in sevenfold power meanwhile our lord recognizes as his kindred not those bound by ties of nature but of grace 46 to 50 division 4 chapters 13 2028. The Kingdom of an Absent King Entrusted to the Hands of Men The separation forced upon our Lord at the close of the former division is accentuated throughout the present one. There is no longer, we may say, a tentative presentation of himself for their acceptance, but rather the recognition of a refusal which was reaching on toward its awful climax in the cross, the shadow of which falls upon the lonely path the rejected king must take. This rejection, of course, was known to him from the beginning, and indeed the very principles of his kingdom were given in view of the persecution and rejection which his followers would suffer. Thus, glory and power do not characterize the kingdom, but rather meekness and suffering. All this is brought out in our present division, the first part of which gives us in the form of parables, the future history of his kingdom during the time of his rejection, together with the characteristics of that rejection as experienced by our Lord and the promise of the establishment of the Church, a glimpse of the Kingdom in its glory, and the responsibilities connected with its administration upon earth. We add a few words upon each of the subdivisions of this great portion of our Evangelist. Subdivision 1. Chapter 13 colon 1-52. The Prophetic Outline of the Kingdom in Mystery Form. These seven parables of the Kingdom give us, as their number would indicate, a complete view of the Kingdom of Heaven during the time of our Lord's absence. It began with the very period of seed sowing by our Lord, reaching on through the entire present interval of grace to its consummation in judgment, with a glimpse at the glory beyond. The seven are divided into two parts, the first four being spoken to the multitude and give the external history of the Kingdom in our Lord's absence, and the last three, spoken to his disciples alone, deal with the more final and vital aspects of the kingdom. We note these two parts. First, verses 1-35, The World History of the Kingdom Spoken to the Multitude The first of the four parables, that of the sower, divides itself into four parts, suggesting the earth aspect of the effects of the sowing of the word of truth, 1-23. It is only where the seed is received in good ground, that it bears abiding fruit. All the rest perishes by satanic influence, the unbroken hardness of the flesh, or the course of the world. The second parable, of the Tares, 24-30, is the history of Satan's counterfeit introduced into the kingdom, and speaks more particularly of those forms of apostasy and the persons identified with them which mark the state of things at the close. These first two parables are connected together, both in form and subject, and give us, as has been said, rather the individual aspect of membership in the kingdom. The third parable, of the mustard seed, 31, 32, shows the growth of the kingdom from small beginnings to a great world power, not for righteousness, but affording shelter for various forms of evil. The fourth parable, of the leaven, 33, goes along with this, and shows the inward working of the leaven of false doctrine permeating and corrupting the entire mass of profession. The principles heading up in these are already at work, and their full manifestation will be when the true people of God are removed and the corrupt professing church, together with apostate Israel, is left alone, waiting for judgment. This closes the first section of the Parables of the Kingdom, 34, 35. 2nd, verses 36-52, the end as seen in judgment and in glory. The explanation of the parable of the tares comes in here, 36-43. It looks forward to the time when the Lord will gather out of His kingdom all things which offend and them that do iniquity, when that kingdom shall be as the barn, in which the precious grain is safely housed, the righteous then shining forth as the sun. The parable is cast in Jewish form, and the rapture of the heavenly saints does not seem to be included, they are caught up, not by the angels, but by the Lord Himself. There is no difficulty when we remember that the last form in which the kingdom appears gives character to the entire period covered by the sowing of the tares. They are in both the present interval of the church's history and the succeeding one of God's resumption of His ways with His earthly
0: people. The Next Parable of the treasure hid in the field, 44, points to the ground of our Lord's future dealing
1: in blessing with Israel, the field, the world, is purchased for the sake of the treasure in it, Israel. In the Parable of the Pearl, 45, 46, we have the purchase of the church to be the display of our Lord's glory in the heavenlies, as we see in Revelation. We need hardly say that the merchantman is a type of our Lord, and the price paid in both parables, was, all that he had, his own life, which he gave to purchase both his earthly and heavenly people. What a perversion of the truth is the other thought that the sinner gives up what he never had, in order to purchase Christ. The closing parable, of the net cast into the sea, 47-52, speaks of the final discriminative gathering from the nations, where that which is of God is safely cared for, while the rest shares in that judgment which is ever declared to mark the close of the dispensation prior to the setting up of our Lord's millennial kingdom upon earth, asterisk. Asterisk this brief summary of this most important series of parables is all that we can give here. In the chapter on the parables they will be again mentioned, but for anything like an exhaustive examination, the reader must turn to some of the books spoken of in the latter part of our volume. Subdivision 2 CHAPTERS 13-53, 14. THE KING IN HIS REJECTION This part gives us various thoughts of our Lord's ministry after the crises which we have already noted at the close of the third division. The remainder of his Galilean ministry and earthly course is spent under the shadow of an impending outbreak. Already in heart rejected by the leaders of the people, he will go on ministering in grace so far as unbelief will not refuse him. Therefore we find here striking manifestations of that grace. Section 1. Chapters 13:53 to 14:12, refused at Nazareth and sharing in the rejection of John. In Nazareth itself, 53 to 58, even as in Judah, our Lord as the son of David is refused. In the synagogue they stumble at the very grace in which he had taken his place among them as the carpenter's son. The true builder's son he was, indeed, he that built all things is God the son of the great architect, and himself the builder of his church upon the rock. Reading beneath the outward reproach implied here, we have a glimpse of the glory of him whose very humiliation is the occasion for his manifesting that glory. Faith thus takes up the taunt of the world and accepts it as the statement of the most glorious fact. He is indeed the carpenter's son. The end of John the Baptist's faithful ministry, chapter 14, 1-12, accords with that of all faithful witnesses in an ungodly world. He gets the prophet's reward at the hands of sinful men, hatred and death. Herod stands for the apostate nation. Not really an Israelite, but with the prerogative of a ruler of Israel, his unholy alliance which he will not break, rebuked by the faithful prophet, became the occasion for the execution of God's faithful servant. He thus reminds us of the character of the ungodly nation in the last days, led on by Antichrist, when Christ's
0: witnesses will be put to death. Section 2. Verses 13-21, The Feeding of the Five Thousand
1: Obliged to seek retirement in the face of such hatred, our Lord will let nothing check His ministering to the need of His people. Section 3. Verses 22-33, Walking Upon the Water In this miracle our Lord manifests Himself as superior to all circumstances, walking calmly through them all. Faith covets to follow Him, and Peter, suggesting the church going forth. Unto Him, would fain walk as He walked, independent of the boat, of Judaism. It gives us a glimpse of Peter's entire character, the desire to do, coupled with failure in accomplishment, and our Lord's succoring grace. Section 4. Verses 34-36. to Mercy to the Nations. The dispensational picture is completed when the boat reaches the land, and healing goes forth to all who have need. Thus will it be when our Lord appears as the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. Subdivision 3. Chapters 15. 1612. Formalism and Faith Contrasted This portion manifests the essential wickedness of the natural heart, no matter how religious it may be. Indeed its very punctiliousness in the matter of religious observances but displays its essential enmity to God. But in contrast to this, we have the heart of God meeting need wherever faith counts upon Him. Section 1 Chapter 15, 1-20, Traditionalism and Defilement How mean are all the petty ways of selfish religiousness. Even human love is stifled by it, and the very commandment of God trampled beneath the feet of those who pretend to eschew defilement. Alas, the heart of man, until renewed, has nothing in it but that which can defile. Section 2 Verses 21-28 Crumbs for the dogs. The lovely contrast in the case of the Syrophoenician woman is familiar. Wherever there is need which does not assume a place which is not its own, a Gentile could not appeal to the Son of David. There is blessing to the extent of the need. Section three, verses 29 to 38, the feeding of the four thousand. There is a largeness of blessing here, not only in feeding the multitude but healing the lame blind dumb maimed and all who are cast at his feet the multitude glorified the god of israel alas they have not faith to stand against their leaders and identify themselves with him who was thus glorifying god section 4 chapters 15:39 16:4 the signs of the times these leaders pretend to desire a sign but fail to notice that which witnesses of the coming judgment, the red and lowering sky caused by the dark cloud of unbelief, which obscured the shining of the sun of righteousness. Section five, verses five to twelve. Beware of leaven. The Lord takes occasion to warn His disciples. Slow indeed they are to apprehend His meaning against the contaminating influence of the religious leaders. Leaven, as we have already had occasion to see. Is a figure of an energy of evil working to corrupt. This will be found the consistent meaning of leaven throughout Scripture. Here it refers to doctrine, and in Galatians 5 verse 9 also, where legal principles are spoken of as leaven, a little of which will mar and corrupt all the doctrine with which it is associated. The same expression in 1 Corinthians 5:6 refers to the allowance of moral. Evil. Indifference to truth and sin will corrupt a whole company or fellowship of the people of God. In the light of Scriptures like these, as well as the constant use of the term in the Old Testament, how could we think of leaven as a good influence? Not only is the simile unscriptural, but the doctrine which is built upon it is the very reverse of true. So far from good gradually permeating and changing evil, Scripture declares, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Subdivision four, chapters sixteen thirteen to seventeen twenty one, the revelation of Christ for faith in the heart and to the eye. The scenes which follow are outside of or on the limits of the land, suggestive of the rejection which we have seen is characteristic of this whole period. Here, where His earthly people are turning their backs upon Him, faith shines out most brightly. His true person is apprehended and therefore God can reveal the glories which shall attend his final manifestation. Section 1 Verses 16 colon 13-19 The Foundation Upon Which The Church Is Built Our Lord craves an answer from His own as to who He is. The world may give Him a high place as John the Baptist, Elias, Jeremias or one of the prophets, but this will not do for faith. Peter's noble confession, speaking for us all, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God, is what God teaches concerning His Son, and alone can satisfy His heart. Here we have the living Rock upon which His Church is built, not a stone, Peter, as Rome would vainly claim, nor Peter's confession of the Great Truth, but rather Him who Himself is the Truth, the Rock of Ages. Against Him no assault of the enemy can prevail death itself bars its gates in vain against his triumphant resurrection power, a power not only for himself, but for his chapter. we have here an evident prophetic reference to that which embodies the work of God in this day of our Lord's absence. It is the Church which is Christ's body formed by the Holy Spirit and composed of every believer in the present period of grace, from Pentecost to the coming of our Lord. This building of the Church was yet future. It did not begin until after our Lord was glorified, a type of which we have in the Transfiguration. Section 2. Verses 20-28, The Cross Peter little realized the full meaning of his confession and the solemn necessities connected with it, or he would never have rebuked our Lord for predicting his rejection and death. The way to the glory for him, if he would not be alone, must be by the cross, and those who share in that glory must know something of the same path of rejection. Section 3 Chapter 17-1-8 The Transfiguration Here, we have an anticipation of the glory of which we have already spoken, Moses and Elias, the Law and the Prophets, bearing witness to the glory of the Son of God. They may also suggest the two classes of saints who shall be associated with Him in heavenly glory, Moses, those asleep in Jesus, and Elias, the translated ones. But Christ alone must fill the vision. The glory which shines upon his associates is his glory. This, God declares in, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Section 4. Verses 9-13, Another Prediction of His Cross the scribes ignored the sufferings of Christ and therefore could not understand the glory that should follow. Elias had already come, but was rejected, and so also must Christ suffer. Section 5. Verses 14 to 21. The healing of the lunatic. We have here another dispensational glimpse of how, after his exaltation, when our Lord descends to his earthly people, he will cast out the demon of unbelief from them. The principle applies in all times. Subdivision 5. Chapters 17-22-2028. Governmental Responsibilities. This portion is confined largely to our Lord's intercourse with His disciples, rather than with those outside. Several features may be noted. Section 1. Verses 22-27, His Rejection Again Foretold. Although one of the children, and indeed the son, our Lord in grace submits to pay tribute. How sad the thought, his own people considered him a stranger. Section 2. Chapter 18, 1-14, The Spirit of a Little Child All greatness is moral, and a true lowliness lies at its foundation. He who was higher than the highest was meek and lowly in heart. The spirit of a little child marks all who bear his yoke and learn of him. Section 3 Verses 15-20 Responsibilities in the Assembly This spirit of lowliness is not to displace that faithfulness which will maintain the honour of the Lord. Faith and meekness can rebuke sin. This is illustrated in this portion, where the effort to win an erring brother is described. We may remark in passing, how opposite from the legal spirit in which some would apply this scripture are the directions here. The object is to win, not to condemn. Every means is exhausted, even to leaving the case in the hands of the assembly. Section 4. Verses 21-35, to True Forgiveness How solemn is the connection here! May we not ask ourselves if much that passes for zeal in discipline may not really be mingled with an unforgiving spirit? Section 5. Chapter 19 1-15, Holiness in Natural Relationships. The Lord shows the sanctity of the marriage relationship, a subject which may well be pondered in this day of looseness. In connection with this, the invitation for the little children to be brought to him has an added sweetness. Natural relationships are of God, and have His blessing. Section 6 Chapters 1916-2016 The Necessity for Reality Mere nature, however, no matter how attractive, will not suffice in the things of God. This is brought out in the narrative of the rich man. Of what avail was all his keeping of the letter of the law when in his heart he had enthroned his wealth in the place which God alone must occupy. Our Lord warns, therefore, against this. Peter, after his manner, protests that they have given up all, following him. Our Lord accepts this, but in the succeeding parable shows that much which goes for devotion, when tested, will have to take a low place. The last shall be first, and the first last. Section 7 Chapter 20 colon 17-28 True Greatness in the Kingdom Again, our Lord predicts his rejection, death, and resurrection. In sharp contrast to his humiliation in love for us, the selfishness of his poor disciples asserts itself in the request of the mother of Zebedee's children for a place of special honor in his kingdom. Our Lord promises them only his cup and baptism. The spirit and ways of the kingdom are again set before them, the glory is for the lowly and will be given not for those who crave it themselves, but for whom it is prepared. DIVISION 5 CHAPTERS 20 23 The triumphal entry of the King, seen also as rejected by the leaders, and rejecting them. We enter now upon the closing scenes of our Lord's life. The rejection which had overshadowed the previous division still is present, but the time for his retirement is past, he now presents himself in the boldness of divine right and the meekness of perfect obedience. His enemies must come out more openly than they have yet done, they must either fully reject and crucify Him or own Him as their King. Which shall it be? Our Lord labours under no misapprehension. He fully recognises the true nature of the opposition which is arrayed against Him and meets it in every form in which it appears. Throughout the whole scene there is an unmistakable dignity, but it is a dignity of meekness and truth, not of outward power.
0: Subdivision 1. Chapters 2029 20, to 2122. The King Presented
1: The opposition must come from the enemy, not from the Lord who still continues to scatter blessings wherever he goes. Section 1. Verses 29-34, Opening Blind Eyes. Blind need can discern the son of David where? Open-eyed self-sufficiency sees and despises him. Section 2. Chapter 21, 1-11, The Entry of the King into Jerusalem. The typical character of this entry is manifest. Indeed, it is a fulfillment of the prophet's words. That both the ass and its colt should be mentioned is a striking illustration of the perfection of the inspired word in contrast with a barren attempt at exactness. Our Lord seems to have ridden both animals, one after the other. The ass stands for Israel by nature. Its colt suggests the remnant, the newborn nation. It is this last which alone can truly bear its king into the holy city, but the nation is merged into this and thus the two are mentioned together. The time is coming when Israel according to the flesh shall be represented, not by the apostate and ungodly mass, but by a nation born in a day, newborn by the grace of god who shall proclaim with delight blessed is he that cometh in the name of the lord hosanna to the
0: son of david section 3 verses 12 to 17 the purging of the temple the refiner
1: and purifier of silver is seen the lord who shall suddenly come to his temple How this moment would have introduced the entire millennial blessing for Israel had there been a heart to receive him who thus would purge his house. It could not be, man being what he is. Israel, as well as ourselves and the entire human family, could alone have redemption offered to them on the ground of the sacrificial death of our Lord, but this only accentuates the guilt of the chief priests who reject him in face of his manifest moral glory. Our Lord declares the babes and sucklings will declare his praise if the leaders will not, and the very stones proclaim the shame of those who know
0: not the son of David. Section 4. Verses 18-22, The Fig Tree Withered. We
1: have here another symbolic act. The fig tree stands for the Jewish nation, a fig tree, not a vine, because only a fragment of the nation, two tribes, was restored from Babylon this failed to bear fruit, and the time was coming when, refusing the blessing, it must receive the curse. In spite of its bravery of profession in the abundance of leaves, the fruit, which in the fig tree precedes the leaves, was utterly wanting. In this very judgment of nature, faith finds occasion to count upon God, it trusts Him who withers our nature's strength and thus removes the mountains which would oppose our true progress.
0: Subdivision 2 CHAPTER 21-23-46 THE KING REJECTED
1: The conflict of the leaders with our Lord goes on, ever manifesting their implacable hatred and showing our Lord's full knowledge of all that was coming. SECTION 1 VERSES 23-27 HIS AUTHORITY They profess to want to know by what authority our Lord is acting. In no arbitrary way, he asks them a question which must precede his answer. Do they recognize John's baptism have they bowed in repentance to God? If not, they are incapable of knowing by what authority he acts. Section 2. Verses 28-32, to The Two Sons Our Lord will press further upon their conscience. They were like the son who promised to obey his father and did not, While the publicans and the despised ones who did not conceal their former disobedience, now in penitence are putting to shame the formalism of the Pharisees. Section 3. Verses 33-46, The heir is slain. In the parable of the vineyard and the husbandman, our Lord shows that the leaders' opposition would only culminate when they had deliberately rejected and cast out and slain the true heir. This is most solemn while it shows the love which would in advance bring home their premeditated sin upon them, if even yet they might be brought to repentance and turn to Him.
0: Subdivision 3. Chapter 22 1-14. The Marriage of the King's Son.
1: This parable of the kingdom shows how the purposes of God are to be fulfilled, in spite of the wicked rejection of our Lord by His earthly people. He still will make a marriage for his son. He will have a companion associated with him in the blessing and glory into which he will enter. The bride is not directly spoken of here. We may think of her as the earthly companion of our Lord, the new nation of which we have already spoken. Section 1 Verses 1-4, to The Call To this wedding feast, God will send out invitations. Indeed, One had already gone forth during the ministry of John the Baptist and of our Lord upon earth. Section 2. Verses 5-7, Rejection. This had been made light of and ignored, and the result would be the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jews. Section 3. Verses 8-10, The Gentiles Gathered In. Here we have the ingathering which has been going on throughout the present dispensation. The former narrative is still earthly, as we saw in the case of the parable of the tares, and therefore the final gathering is not the church on high, but the company of professed believers in the brief period after the rapture of the Chachapter. chapter however, the dispensational lines are not closely drawn, but the great and solemn facts are laid upon the conscience. Section 4. Verses 11, 12, Without a Wedding Garment The king comes in to see his guests. Of course, this could not be in heaven where the church is gathered, for there will be no false professors there, but, as we said, it is a solemn truth rather than dispensational exactness that is pressed upon our heart. However, all is clear when we bear in mind what is said above. The king comes in, not to seek for enemies but to see his friends. The enemies, however, must be detected. They are known by their refusal to accept the provision of the wedding garment. Section 5. Verses 13, 14, The Doom. The end of enemies can only be judgment against which they cannot protest.
0: Their lips are sealed. Subdivision 4. Chapter 15 46
1: Enemies silenced. The leaders still seek to ensnare our Lord, but in the questions they ask they are themselves taken. Section 1. Verses 15-22, Tribute to Caesar This was a constant source of irritation to the Jews, whose pride could not brook the thought of subjection to a foreign authority. Like their boasted Sabbath-keeping, however, it was all a sham, the stern fact was that they were a tributary people, using Caesar's money, and therefore should render tribute to him, and acknowledge as well their responsibilities to God, which they utterly ignored. Section 2. Verses 23-33, The Resurrection The Sadducees, the skeptics of their day, propound a hypothetical case, grotesque enough in itself, but revealing also an utter ignorance of the Scriptures and the power of God. Our Lord's answer brings out weighty truth while rebuking their ignorance of God and His Word.
0: Section 3. Verses 34-40 the greatest commandment. The Pharisees, at the
1: opposite extreme from the Sadducees, next ask what is the most important feature of the law, to be answered by that perfect summary which gives God his supreme place and links men together in love. Section 4. Verses 41-46. What think ye of Christ? His enemies had asked him three questions, a political, a doctrinal and a legal. Having answered each of these, he asks them one, the question of all questions. We can but marvel at the wondrous simplicity and heart-searching depth of this interrogatory, with its intimations of a fullness in his person revealed only to those who know God, David's Son and David's Lord. If they know him not, what need for further questions on their part? Thus they are silenced. Subdivision 5 Chapter 23 THE ARRAIGNMENT OF HIS REJECTORS In order rightly to understand this grandly solemn chapter, we must remember the circumstances. The Lord, rejected, hated, the net being drawn ever more closely about Him, well knowing that the Cross is near, turns upon His enemies, not in anger, nor weakness, but in all the regal dignity and conscious authority which go with absolute, divine, moral righteousness. The conditions are reversed. The leaders are the culprits, and he whom they would take is their judge, and yet we shall fail to get the full meaning of what he says unless we remember the infinite compassion, deep yearning love for the very ones whose doom he must declare. Section 1. Verses 1-12, False Rulers The leaders occupied Moses' seat. So long as they enforced the law of Moses they were to be obeyed, but they were destitute of the very first principle of a true lawgiver, which is to be himself subject to the laws. These, on the contrary, exalt themselves at the expense of a burdened people. How opposite to the lowliness which our Lord enjoins upon His disciples and which He so perfectly exemplified! Section 2. Verses 13-33, The Sevenfold Woe Nothing could exceed the solemnity of this denunciation. The number of woes reminding us of those pronounced in Isaiah 5 and 6 suggests the completeness and finality of the judgment they had brought upon themselves. In general, they declare the blindness, hypocrisy, and implacable hatred of those who posed as the religious patterns and leaders of the people. Nothing could be more dreadful. The seven woes follow first, for shutting up the kingdom, verse 13. Second, for false proselyting. Ver. 15. 3rd, for unholy trickery about sacred things, verses 16-22. Fourth, for punctiliousness about trifles, while regardless of the greatest matters, verses 23, 24. 5, for inward uncleanness with outward scrupulosity, verses 25, 26. 6, whited sepulchres full of dead men's bones, verses
0: 27, 7. For professed honours paid to martyred prophets while they are plotting further
1: martyrdom of the greatest of all, thus filling up the iniquity of their fathers and identifying themselves with the shedding of all righteous blood from Abel down. How could they, with such willing-hearted corruption escape the judgment of hell? Divine Love Asks the Question, Verses 29-36. Asterisk, verse 14 which occurs in Mark and Luke is omitted here by the editors on the authority of most of the ancient manuscripts. Section 3. Verses 37-39, The Sorrow of the King and Judge How inexpressibly sweet and sad is this closing element which gives character to the entire sentence pronounced. What must be the hopelessness of that condition when divine power, righteousness and love can only unite in mourning over the obduracy of the human heart. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Division 6. Chapters 24 and 25. The coming of the King in final glory, announced in reference to Israel, the Church and the world. To give anything like an adequate analysis of this great discourse, Would be to traverse the entire field of prophetic truth, of which it furnishes the great salient features. This would require a volume, where we have but space for a few pages. We must therefore be concise and omit much that is not absolutely necessary for an understanding of the outlines of this Gospel. As we have seen, Matthew is distinctively the great governmental Gospel. We have the king, his kingdom and the administration, not only of that kingdom but of everything upon earth with reference to it. We need not be surprised, therefore, that the vision reaches far beyond the limits of Israel. In one sense, but under what different conditions? This discourse upon the Mount of Olives reminds us of Moses' view of the land from the summit of Mdipizga. The lawgiver must feel the sentence of the law which he himself had pronounced, and is shut out from the goodly land which he can only behold from afar. A greater than the lawgiver is also surveying the whole field of what is to be his future inheritance in Israel, the Church and the world. Neither is he now going to enter into it, but through no failure of his own. Love and divine compassion are leading him to take the consequences of the trespass of his people and to suffer without the gate in their stead. Thus he will open the way for their entrance in blessing into the inheritance and establish the foundation upon which his kingdom shall rest undisturbed for all time and eternity. As has been already remarked, the discourse grows out of the disciples' implied thought that the temple and all connected with it were permanent. Our Lord declares all must be overthrown. Neither his kingdom nor his temple can rest upon any foundation but that which he must lay through his cross. Therefore, He must pronounce the end in judgment upon all else. This judgment will take place in connection with his second coming, which brings in the end of the age. There are three main subdivisions of this discourse, devoted to the three great departments of responsibility respectively, in Israel, the Church, and the Gentile world. Subdivision 1 Chapter 24 1 11 Israel in relation to the Lord's Second Coming. There can be no clear apprehension of prophetic truth unless the distinction between Israel and the Church, and indeed, the world, is clearly seen, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32. This first portion of the discourse therefore is confined to the Lord's coming with reference to His earthly people Israel. To apply what He here says to the present dispensation and the Church, would introduce all manner of confusion. Of course, the disciples to whom He was speaking became afterwards part of the Ch- chapter He addresses them, however, as representative Jews who might be present at the time of His second coming. The connection also between the first destruction of Jerusalem, which was so soon take to take place, and the final overthrow of the apostate nation at the end, shows the unity of the moral condition which will characterize the people at both these periods. We see in chapter 10 something of the same where the sending out of the disciples by our Lord was connected with His second coming. The present interval of grace is left out of view. We cast a brief glance at the various sections of this portion. Section 1. Verses 1-14, The Beginning of Sorrows. This portion is an answer, apparently, to the first part of the disciples' question as to the destruction of Jerusalem, and is general in its character. There are certain features appropriate to the entire period of our Lord's absence, looked at as we have seen in the parable of the tares. False Christs were to abound, there were to be wars and rumors of wars, nature itself in sympathy with the moral upheaval that is to take place, persecutions of the true disciples were to abound, while false prophets were to be numerous and apostasy would creep in. The gospel of the kingdom, however, would be preached to the end. This, as we have seen, Is spoken of in chapter 10. Section 2, verses 15 to 28, The Abomination of Desolation. We are here in the last days, having overleaped the entire present period of the Church's history, and are in the last week of Daniel, the last half of that week. The false Christs and false prophets previously spoken of are here embodied in that one person whom they prefigured, this one is the Antichrist, the false prophet. It is he who sets up the image of the beast, Revelation 13 verses 13-17, Daniel 9 verse 27, which is the signal for the introduction of the great tribulation for all who will not acknowledge the authority of the beast, the political, imperial power, as supported by apostate Judaism under the Antichrist. When this takes place, the faithful are to flee. In Luke there is apparently more special reference to the first destruction of Jerusalem under the Romans, see Luke 21 verse 20. Our Lord goes on to describe the fearful tribulations of those days, for Jews and not for Christians. The shortening of these days of tribulation, verses 19, 22, refers to the fact that the great tribulation does not commence at the beginning of Daniel's week, but in the middle, and lasts but three and a half years. His people are particularly warned against the false Christs. 23-26 Then, when evil is at its height, the Son of Man will appear as the lightning in the heaven, there shall be no mistaking His appearing. 27-28 Section 3
0: Verses 29-44 The Appearing of the Son of Man
1: This is that great appearing of our Lord with clouds when, every eye shall see Him, and they also that pierced him, and all the kindreds of the land shall wail because of him, 29-31. He next warns his disciples of the certainty and nearness of this coming. Morally, it was already near, though the entire present interval of grace has elapsed, all things have been in abeyance. At the end, the remnant will recognize the signs of the times when the fig tree puts forth her leaves, 32-35. While the nearness and the certainty of this appearing will be well known to the remnant, no date can be fixed. This serves to rebuke in a general way all foolish efforts to set a date for the Lord's coming by those who are ignorant of the elementary distinction between the rapture of the church at the close of this present period and the appearing to which this entire prophecy refers. It would also guard the elect in that day from attempting to set an exact date for that which is known only to the Father. It will suffice for them to know that all things will go on as in the days of Noah, when suddenly the Son of Man will come. Then, some will be taken away in judgment and others left for blessing, 36-41. The moral lesson of it all is, to be ready and to watch, 42-44. Subdivision 2 Chapter 2400 Hours 45, 25-30 THE LORD'S COMING WITH REFERENCE TO THE CH CHAPTER It is significant that throughout that part of the discourse referring to Israel, our Lord speaks of Himself as, the Son of Man, while in that which now comes He is called, Lord. Verses 42-44 have both expressions and are of that general character of moral warning which would be appropriate to both. Section 1 Verses 45-51, THE RESPONSIBILITIES OF THE SERVANT The Lord here speaks of those who have been entrusted with responsibilities in connection with His Kingdom during His absence. They are either faithful stewards or unfaithful, and as such will receive their recompense. We would suggest that while this portion of the discourse has reference to the present church period, it will probably be found that what is said of the interpretation of the parable of the tares would also apply here, that is, that while the present period is included, the form of what is said is earthly and may reach on to the period of the tribulation. This would explain how the judgment falls upon the unfaithful servants in an unexpected moment. We could not apply this to the Ch chapter. Section 2 Chapter 25 colon 1-13 The Coming of the Bridegroom This is a parable of the Kingdom of Heaven, and what has already been said as to it will apply here. The bridegroom would be Christ, and the wedding, not the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven where the church is the bride, but the earthly kingdom which He sets up here. Those who are waiting for the bridegroom, however, would be primarily Christians, during the present dispensation, though as we have already said, it may go beyond into the next period. That is, our Lord is here impressing the lesson of readiness for those who are waiting for His coming. We need say but little as to the two classes. Those without oil figure mere profession, those destitute of the Holy Spirit, whose lamps of testimony are found to be going out at the critical time. Section 3. Verses 14-30, to The Parable of the Talents. This third portion of the address which covers the present church period speaks of the gifts which have been entrusted to the Lord's servants during His absence. What has already been said as to the virgins is applicable here. It is kingdom truth, rather than the church, it includes the present period, though does not end with it. The moral lessons are so clear that we need not dwell further upon them. Subdivision 3. Chapter 25 colon 31-46. The Appearing of the Son of Man in Relation to the Gentiles. Perhaps no portion of Scripture has been more misunderstood than this solemn scene. Those who do not understand dispensational truth confound this great assize of the living nations with the judgment of the dead in Revelation 20. We need but remember that a thousand years' interval separates the two this judgment taking place before the millennium, and that of the dead at the close of that period of earthly blessing. Here, it is the living, there, the dead, here, the nations in special relation to those who have preached his kingdom, there, all the wicked dead from the time of Cain. Three classes are mentioned in this scene. The nations are divided into sheep and goats, and another class, briefly referred to as these my brethren, is distinguished from both. These last are the remnant, those who, as has often been said, are identified with our Lord's first disciples sent out on their ministry and engaged in the same service, carrying the gospel of the kingdom to all the nations of the world. The manner of their treatment indicates the moral condition of those nations and settles their standing as sheep or as goats the judgment here is final in the sense that it goes on to the end as we know the antichrist and the beast of revelation have their place in the same lake of fire where these openly defiant nations also find their doom division 7 chapters 26 to 28 the king crowned with thorns and by his death and resurrection making good all his purposes of blessing for his kingdom and the world in our examination of the nature of our Lord's death and the events connected with it as recorded in each evangelist, we have gone so fully into this portion of our subject that we will confine ourselves almost exclusively to giving the analysis. See Chapter 3, Parts 2 and 3 Subdivision 1 Chapter 26: one 56 Preliminary In this portion we have the account of what takes place up to and including our Lord's betrayal and arrest. Section 1 Verses 1-16 The Forethought of Enemies and of Friends In sorrowful contrast, we have here, 1-5, the plot of the rulers to put our Lord to death, and, 6-13, the pouring the fragrant ointment upon him by the woman. Judas repudiates her act and identifies himself with our Lord's murderers. Section 2. Verses 17-35, to The Passover and the Lord's Supper Kingly dignity has marked our Lord throughout, now He goes towards this dark part of His pathway with the same kingly dignity and in the beauty of meekness that has marked His whole course. It is He who provides for the keeping of the Passover, 17-19, to and at the last of these celebrations foretells his betrayal and points out the traitor, 20-25. Here, too, is the establishment of a new feast, 26-29, which we may call rather the first than the last supper, the light and joy of which has been with us ever since. Next follows the warning to Peter and the disciples with the forewarning of his rejection, 30-35. Section 3 Verses 36-46, The Agony in the Garden We love to linger here and behold the King whose glory never shone out more perfectly than when prostrate upon his face he receives the cup from his father's
0: hand. Section 4. Verses 47-56, The Betrayal Judas with
1: his false kiss, 47-50, and Peter with his ineffectual sword, 51-54, though utterly dissimilar, are both contrasted with the meekness of him who, when all his disciples flee, yields himself up into the hands of his enemies, 55, 56. Subdivision 2. Chapters 26-57-27. The Rejection and Crucifixion of the King. The details of the two trials, the religious, and the civil, are given here, and the cross which follows. Section 1. Chapter 26 57-75, The Trial Before the High Priest. If they condemn him, it must be in the face of the full light. False witnesses will not avail. So the High Priest, by his very adjuration, renders himself and the council inexcusably guilty not only of the rejection of their king, but of the condemnation of the righteous, the Son of God. The blessed Lord is mocked and shamefully entreated, but bears witness in all the conscious dignity of his person and position. The dreadful contrast with poor Peter's cowardice, 69-75, may fill us with shame as we remember how the same heart dwells in us. Section 2. Chapter 27, 1-26, The Trial Before Pilate. The chief priests have been guilty of the unspeakable blasphemy of condemning the Son of God to death. The Romans had deprived them of the power to inflict this penalty however, and thus are compelled to fulfill those scriptures which foretold the manner of our Lord's death. He is therefore brought before the Roman governor. We first see the end of Judas, 3-5, and the diabolical perversity of mere religiousness in the juggling of the Jews with the traitors' money, 6-10. A travesty of trial is gone through before Pilate in which one only stands out in absolute contrast to all the wickedness that is taking place about him, 11-23. Pilate gives sentence that the will of the leaders shall be carried out, and while declaring the Lord's innocence, delivers him up to be crucified, 24-26. Section 3. Verses 27-56, The Crucifixion. The Jews have now rejected their king and turned him over to the Gentiles by whom he is crowned with thorns, symbol of the curse, and arrayed in mockery with a royal robe, 27-31. He is then led forth in his own garments, symbolizing his own character, which God will not permit to be clouded in any way. The two thieves crucified with him, the mockery of the rulers, the railing of the mob, all give the setting in which man has placed the Son of God the King whose steps we have traced as He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed with the devil, they hung upon a cross. 32-44 We have now the nature of that atoning suffering which our Lord was enduring, 45-54, compared with which all the previous mockery was as nothing. To be forsaken of God, to bear the penalty of sin, this is the true essence of His suffering which shows it to be not merely that of the body, but the atoning and all-sufficient sacrifice for the transgression of man. Death follows as the governmental penalty of sin. Subdivision 3 Chapter 27 colon 28 The Resurrection of the King The first part of this narrative, though referring to our Lord's burial, really is linked with His resurrection, for no further desecration is permitted. Section 1 Verses 55-61 The Anointing The kingly triumph, we may say, begins when the women and Joseph of Arimathea take down his body, anoint it and lay it in the new grave. Section 2 Verses 62-66 The Sepulchre Sealed Another note of triumph is struck in the provision which the Pharisees themselves made to guard against a false report of our Lord's resurrection. They thus contribute to an overwhelming testimony to it. The one possible charge that his disciples stole him away is provided against by the very ones who of all others wish to circulate such a falsehood. For, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25. Thus, wickedness overreaches itself and must bear witness to the truth. Section 3 Chapter 28 1-10 The Angel's Witness The circumstances here are in accord with the entire theme of the Gospel. The splendour of the angel's appearance, the earthquake and the assurances of our Lord's resurrection, all have the exultant tone of triumph. They are like the trumpeting heralds going before the King.
0: Section 4 Verses 11-15 The Testimony of the Watch Chapter the keepers who had been
1: as dead men announced their own defeat, while the incurable malignity of the Jews would even pursue their King after He has entered into the glory with the lie which they themselves had made impossible by their plan. Section 5 Verses 16-20 The Last Commission of the King Our Lord meets His disciples, as appointed, in Galilee, where He had done so many of His royal works. For faith, He is now the King in glory, and commissions His disciples to go forth to gather in subjects into that kingdom which He is establishing. In our last view of the blessed King all power is committed into His hands, His ascension is not recorded, as the entire theme of our evangelist is connected with the earth. He who empowers them and sends them forth is still with them to the end of that age which shall forever close the period of His earthly rejection and open up the glories of that kingdom which shall have no end. Mark. General theme, Christ the Son of God as prophet, declaring the message of God to his people, and his servant, accomplishing the will of God in ministering to their need. His course of untiring service in this connection more and more rejected, but going forward to the crowning act of service, made sin for man's sin, thereby accomplishing atonement, going up on high, still laboring with his servants in the gospel which they proclaim. Division 1. Chapters 1, 5. The beginning of his service, the more personal aspect. Division 2. Chapters 6, 1045. The rejection of the servant and prophet in which those who are connected with him are associated. Division 3. Chapters 1046, 16. Prophetic testimony fully declared, and service reaching its climax in the cross, leading on to resurrection. These three divisions suggest that threefold character of service, its activity, obstacles and culmination, which speak of the divine fullness of God humbled down to our need and now exalted again. We might give Philippians 2 verses 5-11 as the scriptural synopsis of this service. We will take up each of these divisions and glance at the various parts into which they are subdivided.
0: Division 1. Chapters 1, 5. THE BEGINNING OF HIS SERVICE, THE MORE PERSONAL ASPECT. This
1: first division is filled with the record of a tireless service in teaching, healing, and declaring the will of God in prophetic ministry. The attention is centered upon the Lord and His work, with details as to the nature of the need and the character of the healing ministry. This first portion in all the synoptists has a certain character, particularly in Matthew and Mark. The activities are not hampered by the opposition. This comes later on, and in our Gospel finds its proper place in the second division. Subdivision 1. Chapter 1 colon 1-13. The Son of God announced by the forerunner and entering upon his service. The first verse is introductory and guards against any misapprehension as to the true dignity of the one who had humbled himself. While the expression, Son of God, does not necessarily refer to the eternal relationship with the Father, as, the only begotten, in John, it cannot be separated from this, and therefore declares who the person is who enters upon his prophetic office of service. Section 1. Verses 1-3. The Way Prepared. It is fitting, therefore, that his title should be given, together with the reference to the prophet which pointed to the coming
0: of a forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord Jehovah. Section 2. Verses 4-8, The Forerunner.
1: We have here the testimony of John in the wilderness, with its striking results. Brevity and conciseness are marked. In a few lines, the clothing, food and preaching of John, all appropriate to his prophetic office, are described. Notice how all points to the coming of a mightier than He, who would baptize with the Holy Ghost. Section 3. Verses 9-11, The Opened Heavens. God here adds His voice, to the testimony of Scripture and of John the Baptist, to the dignity of Him who was taking His place in lowliness, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Section 4. Verses 12, 13. The temptation. Mark gives here in two verses the summary of that which Matthew and Luke give in full. The brevity is pregnant, while an added feature is given that our Lord was with the wild beasts. Notice, too, that the Spirit here drives the Lord, we might say, appropriate to his position as servant, while in Matthew, he is led. These are not contradictory, but each is appropriate to the gospel in which it occurs. Subdivision 2. Chapters one 3. The call to service and the perfect example of it. Our Lord, after John was delivered up to prison, goes forth to continue and perfect his prophetic testimony. Section 1. Verses 14-20, The call of Simon and others. At the outset, he calls into association with himself those who are to learn from his perfect example what service is. I will make you fishers of men.
0: Section 2. Verses 21-39. The Demon Cast Out, And Many Cures In the synagogue,
1: as he taught in his prophetic service, a man with an unclean spirit is present, suggesting the power of the enemy in the very place where the Word of God should have been supreme. He is cast out, twenty-one to twenty-eight. Entering into Simon's house, a type, we may say, of Israel, he finds his mother-in-law prostrate with a fever, incapable of doing aught. He dismisses the fever and she ministers to them, twenty-nine thirty-one. The evening brings no cessation in this activity of service. Multitudes oppressed with various ills gather about the door to find healing and blessing. It is noted that he will not allow the demons to bear witness of him, although they know him well, 32-34. One most important thing for a servant to notice is that nothing is allowed to interfere with the spirit of dependence which marked our Lord. Rising up early, he goes forth to prayer, and to the statement later of Simon, that all men sought for him, he simply replies that he must go to other places to perform the work which he had come to do, 35-39. Section 3. Verses 40-45, The Cleansing of the Leper Doubtless, each form of disease was typical of some special manifestation of sin, the demon possession suggesting the power of Satan, as fever did the false energy of an activity not of the spirit. Here, the leprosy speaks of uncleanness and therefore unfitness for the presence of God. Such was the condition of Israel, as well as that of every sinner. Notice how the Lord touches the leper, suggesting how he came to meet our sin and put it away. The command here to tell no one does not seem to be because of the opposition, but rather that his true service was in danger of being hampered by the multitudes treating him as a mere healer. Miracles themselves were only acted parables, and our Lord came from heaven to do something more than cure the ills of the body. Section 4 Chapter 2 1-12 The paralytic cured. If leprosy suggests the guilt and defilement of sin, paralysis or palsy speaks of the helplessness which accompanies it. When we were yet without strength, paralytics, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, lepers. Notice the teaching of our Lord as to forgiveness. It is sin and guilt which bring in helplessness, and when these are forgiven, the power to walk in God's way is assured. Notice also the first murmurings of opposition here in the suggestion that our Lord was blaspheming. Section 5. Chapter 2.13, six. Disciples Attracted. The Opposition Forming. The first part of this section leads on to the beginning of the next. Such activities of mercy, with teaching, will gather followers and draw the line so clearly that men must accept or reject. First, We have the call of Levi, Matthew, the Publican, 13-17. The Pharisees oppose our Lord sitting at meat with such persons. He justifies His ministry of healing, whether physical or moral, by saying, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Further contrast between formal Judaism and living association with Himself is next given. 18-22 new wine must be put into new bottles. Fasting and formalism for religious purposes may do for Judaism, or even the disciples of John as not yet fully set free, but the children of the bride chamber cannot fast while he is with them. Next, we have the scene in the cornfields, 23, 28, and the opposition of the Pharisees, with our Lord's justification of what the disciples were doing. David is given as an illustration, and, appropriately to Mark, the Sabbath is declared to be for man rather than man for the Sabbath. The healing of the withered hand, 3 1-6, on the Sabbath brings out still further the Jewish opposition. The reason we have given in Matthew. The evident hardening of heart on the part of the Pharisees is taking place, and we find them going out and taking counsel with the Herodians to destroy him. Subdivision 3. Chapters 3, 7, 5. The opposition made manifest and the activity of teaching and serving continued. This closing part of the First Division shows the determined attitude of the Pharisees which culminates in their awful blasphemy, and the Lord's unremitting service and faithful testimony in the face of it all. This fittingly closes the first or more personal part of His public service. Section 1. Chapter 3 7, 434, The Authority, Holiness and Sufficiency of God in the Face of Evil. This portion is subdivided. We may merely note the character of each portion: Multitudes attracted by His Divine Power, 7-12, The Call of the Twelve Disciples to be associated with Himself and to preach, 13-19, The Blasphemy Against the Holy Ghost, 20-30, True Relationship. 31-35, the parables, chapter 4 colon 1-34. These last are not so numerous as in Matthew. We have, indeed, but three parables and one simile given, although we are told that with many such parables He spoke the word unto them. First, the parable of the sower, 1-20. Note that in the explanation our Lord gives a suggestive word, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? Evidently the explanation of one parable was intended as a key, an illustration to guide in the interpretation of others. So also every scripture explanation of other scriptures is to be considered a sample of interpretation. The understanding of a parable entails a responsibility, for those who have, more shall be given them. A light is not to be concealed, 21-25. The growth of the seed 26 to 29 is peculiar to mark and teaches a lesson from the development of the seed which has been cast into the earth. Our Lord has sown the word and gone on high. It springs up and grows, but the harvest is certain, a harvest which includes the eradication of the evil as well as the gathering in of the good. The parable of the mustard seed follows, where it is not merely the growth of a seed, presumably good, but the development of Christendom into a great world power as we see it now, 30-34. Section 2. Chapters 435, 5, Further Workings of the Faithful Servant. We have here several miracles to be taken together. Crossing the lake furnishes the occasion for calming the storm, 35-41. Next follows the casting out of the demon in Gadara. Many beautiful details are given at greater length than in Matthew. Returning back from Gadara, whether he seems to have gone simply to do this work, alas, all unappreciated by those who prefer swine to his presence. Our Lord meets fresh need in the daughter of Jairus whom he raises from the dead, and in the woman with an issue of blood. These two narratives are so intertwined that we cannot fail to combine them in our thoughts. Sin ends in death and is marked by defilement, but both are subject to him who delights to work wherever there is the simplest faith that will touch but the border of his garment, 21-43. Division 2. Chapters 6, 10 The Rejection of the Servant and Prophet, in which those who are connected with him are associated. The conflict of unbelief develops here as seen in the open godlessness of Herod and the empty formalism of the Pharisees on one hand, with the grace of our Lord and four glimpses of His glory on the other, then the practical results in discipleship. We note
0: the subdivisions. Subdivision 1. Chapter 6. Rejection on every hand. Section
1: 1. Verses 1-13. Rejection in his own country. It was sufficient for his opposers that they knew him as the carpenter, so they show the folly of unbelief by failing to see a glory which even then would manifest itself by healing a few sick folk, one to six. This unbelief does not check his service, but gives him rather to multiply the channels through which it will be exercised. We find him therefore sending out the twelve two by two with authority over unclean spirits and to preach repentance and heal the sick. Section 2. Verses 14-29, Herod and John the Baptist. The end of the faithful forerunner is recorded for us at this point, in the midst of the narrative of our Lord's rejection. Surely he too, in a little while, must drink the cup, but for him mingled with wrath, which his faithful servant was tasting. Section 3. Verses 30-45, the feeding of the five thousand. Rejection and opposition will not check the outflowing of mercy so long as there is room to receive it, thus wherever there are hungry souls they will be fed. Section 4. Verses 46-52, to Walking on the Water The opposition we have been speaking of may fittingly be likened to the stormy sea, and the disciples toiling in rowing, while our Lord is on high praying, gives a little picture of the present period when we have been called into his path of service. Soon he will come and the toil will be over. This applies in
0: many ways. Section 5. Verses 53-56, to At the Shore Carrying out
1: the figure, this may suggest how the advent of the Lord will bring health and mercy to his people. Subdivision 2. Chapters 7. 8 9. Human Religion in Enmity to God, Whose Love Delights to Reach the Needy. Here we have, as in Matthew, the contrast between the heart of man in its self-righteousness and the heart of God in ministering grace to the needy. Further details are added to complete the general subject of this part. Section 1. Chapter 7 1-23, The Traditions of the Elders and the Commandments of God. We do not dwell afresh upon these, of which we have spoken in Matthew. There are special features here, no doubt appropriate to mark.
0: Section 2. Verses 24-30, Crumbs from the Master's Table. The Syrophoenician woman
1: has no religious formalism between her need and Christ, she finds him therefore all-sufficient. Section 3. Verses 31-37 the dumb man healed. The formalism of the first part shows Israel's self-sufficiency, the reaching out to the Syrophoenician woman speaks of mercy to the Gentiles. Returning to Israel, he finds dumbness and deafness. The two go together, for, as in nature, no one can speak aright who has not heard aright, the Lord opens the ears as well as the lips, and the
0: dumb speaks plainly. Section 1 Chapter 8 1-9 The Four Thousand Fed
1: It is characteristic of this Gospel, packed as it is with instances of our Lord's activity, that we should have both accounts of the feeding of the multitude, the five thousand, and now the four thousand. Subdivision 3 Chapters 8-10, 9-8 The Sufferings and the Glory, with the Results our Lord is here withdrawing from the public paths where congregated the opposing Pharisees, and in greater retirement His true glory shines
0: forth. Section one, verses ten to twenty-one. No sign for unbelief. The Pharisees
1: profess to desire a sign, which our Lord refuses to give, reminding His disciples a little later that there was one particular form of evil which they should avoid above all other, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod of hypocrisy and self-will. SECTION 2 VERSES 22-26 The Blind Man of Bethsaida We have noted elsewhere the peculiarities of this narrative found in Mark alone. Here is a gradual healing, in no way contradicting the reality of grace, but showing how that grace may be progressive in its workings. Doubtless, there are many cases of this, and indeed, may we not say, the Grace which has opened our eyes goes on to show us more and more clearly that to which they have been opened section three verses twenty seven to thirty Peter's confession. If the Pharisees have rejected Christ, his own but more clearly apprehended him, and yet had not Peter his eyes but partly opened to see what was meant in that wondrous word, thou art the Christ section four verses thirty one to thirty eight Peter's rebuke. Here again, Peter is in the forefront, but now not as a witness for Christ, but as indicating how dimly he yet saw the truth. He might discern the person, he did not realize the necessity for the cross. That cross was for our atonement and as an example, too, that we must expect something of the same, so far as rejection by man is concerned, if we are to follow in our Lord's footsteps. Section 5 Chapter 9-1-8 The Transfiguration The cross is followed by the glory, and here we have a glimpse of it.
0: Subdivision 4 Chapter 9 9-50 After the Glory Having had an
1: experience of what the glory was, our Lord descends from the mountain and illustrates what will take place when he returns to this earth for Israel's blessing. There is also the suggestion of the pathway of the disciple after the apprehension of the glory of the Lord. Both these truths seem to be present here, and it requires little discernment to distinguish them. Section 1. Verses 9-13, The Resurrection from the Dead Our Lord commands that they keep silence as to His glory until after His resurrection, a thing which the disciples did not then understand. However, they go on to ask him about the coming of Elias first, as though they had a glimpse of what the transfiguration meant. Our Lord replies that in one sense Elias had come, but he had been rejected, even as himself, whose presence he announced, was to be rejected. SECTION 2 VERSES 14-29 to THE DEMONIAC DELIVERED Again the demoniac appears, and our Lord also will return from His glory to heal poor Israel, oppressed of the devil. This is the dispensational feature. The literal one is similar in moral character. It is the knowledge of the glory of Christ that delivers from the power of Satan. Section 3 Verses 30-32 Death and Resurrection Again Foretold How slow the disciples were to understand. Indeed, they did not really grasp what was meant and the crucifixion came as a shock because of this they neither entered into our lord's rejection nor knew the power of his resurrection until after the descent of the holy ghost section 4 verses 33 to 41 the truly great the true servant would illustrate that spirit and seek to bring his followers into conformity to himself how much of personal jealousy and self-seeking betrays itself in those who at heart desire to follow the Lord? Section 5. Verses 42-50, to The Issues of Eternity. The solemn warning here in connection with that of which they had been speaking shows that those who are despised by the world, the little ones who belong to Christ, are cared for by Him. Let any beware how he stumbles one of the least of these. Not merely is there the suffering in time, but for those who are truly enemies of Christ's lowly servants, an eternal judgment. Subdivision 5 Chapter 10 colon 1-45 Earthly Relationships and Divine Responsibilities We have, in this portion, the relation of nature to God. Some earthly relationships are distinctly of His ordering, and some responsibilities are either of man's making or not inherent in his nature. All are seen in their relation
0: to God. Section 1. Verses 1-12, The Marriage Relationship Our
1: Lord here recognizes the divine ordinance of marriage and corrects the abuse of the formalist which suffered divorce, incidentally pointing out that even the Mosaic provision under strict limitations was not to be compared with the original purpose of God. Section 2. Verses 13-16, Little Children Our Lord ever delighted in children. It shows the exquisite freshness of His heart. It could not have been otherwise in one like Himself, perfect in every respect. If poor, Fallen man loves a flower, a tender little child, how much more shall the Maker of all things say, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and take them up in his arms and bless them. Section 3 Verses 17-22 The Rich Man Here we have a condition or relationship not inherent in nature, but inherited or acquired. It is therefore not a thing to be submitted to and recognized as essential. Rather than have it intrude between the soul and God, it must be cast off. This could not be said of the two former relationships ordained of God. Section 4 Verses 23-27 to Impossible with men, possible with God This application by our Lord of what had gone before needs no enlargement here. Let us ever remember its truth. Section 5 Verses 28-31, Rewards for Faithfulness To Peter's protestation that they had left all and followed him, our Lord states the sure recompense, reminding them however that God has a different order from man's. Section 6. Verses 32-45, Christ's cup and baptism and the glory to follow. Again, our Lord foretells his crucifixion. He was going up to Jerusalem and there was something about Him, not necessarily in His face, but in the holy energy of His person, that impressed the disciples. They knew not what it meant. He speaks plainly to them, but still they do not understand, while He speaks of His shame, they speak of their glory. The request of James and John is given in this connection. Sad fact that we can think of a place of honor in connection with his having no place but one of humiliation and suffering. Division 3 Chapters 1046, 16 Prophetic testimony fully declared and service reaching its climax in the cross, leading on to resurrection. Brief, but most intense has been the life of the devoted servant and witness for God. It had been exercised in all the joy of love, unfettered by aught within, unhindered by aught without, and ministering wherever need was found. Its testimony, however, must produce enemies or friends, and so, gradually, the opposition was developed in the midst of which, though in greater or less separation, our Lord still went on witnessing for God and doing His work. Now, all must soon be brought to a conclusion. As he approaches Jerusalem, Things take on a new and definite character. Every step means a step nearer the cross. Subdivision 1: Chapters 10:46, 13. The Witness of the Perfect Servant. This portion begins, as in the other Gospels, with the cure of Bartimaeus and extends through our Lord's prophetic discourse upon the Mount of Olives. During the brief time here allotted, he enters Jerusalem, presenting himself, if they would but receive him, as the appointed one. Failing in this, he meets all the questions his enemies have to ask, disclosing their sin and hypocrisy and bearing witness of what was to take place after his rejection. Section 1. Chapter 1046-1126, The Entry Into Jerusalem We have here three parts separately noted. As in the other two synoptists, the healing of blind Bartimaeus comes first. It is a typical act, in which our Lord would show His readiness to serve His people's need by opening their eyes. The individual application is simple, 46-52. We next see our Lord fulfilling prophecy as He enters Jerusalem upon the Ass's Colt, 11, 1-11. It should be noticed that in Matthew both the colt and its mother are mentioned, appropriate to the dispensational character of that gospel. Here the colt alone is mentioned, evidently the principal animal used. The faithful prophet is not deceived by the plaudits of the people. He enters the city. Prophecy is fulfilled. He looks around upon the temple and retires to Bethany, the house of humiliation. Next follows the cursing of the fig tree, 12-26, woven together with the purging of the temple. The two are indeed one, but two sides of the same act. He must cleanse his house, and to do this, fruitless profession must be withered up. SECTION 2 CHAPTER 1127, 12, THE CONTRADICTION OF SINNERS AGAINST HIMSELF This portion, as many others, readily subdivides into smaller parts, which we will note. The general subject is that of our Lord's intercourse with the Pharisees and other opposers. The place and order are quite similar to those in the Gospel of Matthew, with certain omissions and an addition. The question of authority comes first, 27-33. Next, 12-1-12, the parable of the husbandman and the vineyard is given with that vividness of detail peculiar to our evangelist. Next, 13 to 17, the question of tribute to Caesar is met, and 18 to 27, the unbelief of the Sadducees in the resurrection is answered. Following this, 28 to 34, the greatest of the commandments is given, with the second of like character. We notice in the response of the questioner and our Lord's gracious reply, "Thou art not far from the kingdom." How grace was lingering near, ready to welcome the first turning to God. Then. The Lord, quoting Psalm 110, meets His enemies with the question as to the real nature of the Son of David. As at the close of the question regarding the law, none dared to ask Him any further questions, so, after this word as to His person, we read significantly, the common people heard Him gladly. His enemies having been silenced, in faithfulness the Lord now warns against their sanctimonious pride, 38-40, and contrasts their covetousness, which would devour widows' houses, with the devotion of a poor widow who would cast all her living into the treasury. Forty-one to forty-four. This last, Mark and Luke alone record.
0: Section three, chapter thirteen, the Olivet discourse. As we noticed in Matthew, the occasion
1: of this discourse is the disciples' remark as to the grandeur and stability of the temple. Predicting that it was all to be overthrown, our Lord goes on to declare what events were associated with its overthrow and the rejection of the people. The discourse is far briefer and covers a not so wide a range as in Matthew, though quite parallel so far as it goes. The first part, 1-13, is devoted to the description of the times of the end when wars and rumors of wars, national upheavals, and the quaking of nature will presage the coming storm of desolation. In the midst of all this, his faithful witnesses will be brought before synagogues and rulers, even those bound by natural ties not refraining from their persecution. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved, a scripture little understood, save by those who mark the dispensational order in the Word of God. This refers, not to the present dispensation, but to the brief period of intense persecution of which these first sufferings are the prelude. Next, 14-23, we have the more intense persecutions, when the abomination causing desolation stands where it ought not. This is the period of the Great Tribulation which we have noted in the analysis of Matthew. False Christs and false prophets will appear, asserting their claims, the very Antichrist himself posing as God in his temple, but all had been provided against. The disciples were to flee from such persecution and hide themselves under the shadow of God's wings until these calamities were overpassed. Doubtless many of the Psalms relating to the remnant refer to this time. The appearing of our Lord in power and glory, 24-27, is then declared, amid circumstances of splendor and profound convulsions of nature he will gather his elect. Our Lord concludes the discourse by the personal application, 28 to 37. When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, it is the sign of approaching summer. Thus, when the throes which he foretells begin, those who stand in their place in the latter days will know that all is ready, even at the doors. This generation shall in no wise pass away till all be fulfilled. The formal character of Judaism and all connected with it will be unchanged in the latter day. The present interval of grace is, as is usual in prophetic discourse, omitted from view. We have here the remarkable expression as to the Son of Man not knowing the day and hour when these things will take place. This is peculiar to Mark, and in keeping with the lowly character of our blessed Lord as the servant and messenger of God. He was concerned with but the fulfillment of his course and obedience to the will of God. In the relation of which Mark speaks, he knew neither the day nor the hour, in common with the angels. As God, however, surely he knew all things. The one great lesson is watchfulness, a lesson which applies to us in the present time, as well as to the remnant
0: in the last days. Subdivision 2 Chapters 14 and 15 The Cross We come
1: now to the events immediately connected with the Crucifixion. We have previously compared the narratives in detail. It simply remains for us to point out the divisions. Section 1. Chapter 14, 1-52, The Plot, The Passover, Gethsemane and The Betrayal We have first the plot against the life of the faithful servant in which Judas conspires with the rulers to betray him to death. Embedded between this wickedness on either hand, We have the gem of the woman in Bethany anointing our Lord with the ointment, the fragrance of which act remains still with us, 1-11. Next we have the Passover feast provided for, at which the traitor is pointed out, and the memorial supper instituted, closing with a hymn, and they retire to the Mount of Olives, our Lord warning the disciples of their weakness, and Peter protesting that he would never deny him, 12-31. Then comes Gethsemane, the agony, and the blessed expression peculiar to mark abba father though he were in the servant's place the consciousness of sonship never leaves him 32 to 42 the multitude under the leadership of judas comes to his arrest the kiss is given in the exuberance of deceit the wretched traitor kisses him repeatedly or affectionately as the word suggests 45 the needless sword is drawn Our Lord bears witness of his innocence, but yields himself up in fulfilment of Scripture, and his disciples flee, the young man who would follow is but exhibiting his shame, for the linen cloth cast about him is no part of his actual garment, speaking of it symbolically. He who follows in nature's strength, will but exhibit his own shame and lose his apparent righteousness, 43-52. Section 2 Chapters 1453 1515, The Trial Before the Council and Before Pilate. The trial, as in all four evangelists, takes place first before the chief priests in the Council, 53 65. When the Lord is witnessing the good confession, Peter is denying him, 66 72. The trial before Pilate, 15 1 15, is given here more briefly. The Lord is silent in face of his accusers, demand is made for the murderer Barabbas to be given in his place, Pilate has knowledge that envy was the cause of the priest's demand for the blood of Christ yet deliberately hands him over to be crucified that he might content the multitude. Section 3 Verses 16-47 The Crucifixion Brief but most solemn is the description of the scenes about the cross. In mockery the soldiers crown our Lord with thorns and array him in royal purple, 16-20. They impress Simon the Cyrenian to carry his cross in the procession to Calvary where our Lord, refusing the wine with myrrh, is crucified as the King of the Jews. Associated with him are the two thieves who mingle their railing with the taunts of the multitude and of the chief priests and the scribes, 21-32. Brief indeed is the description of the last depths of suffering, at the hand of God, in the hours of darkness, and His cry re-echoes through the ages, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? The result is immediately given, verse 38, as our Lord, having uttered a loud cry, breathes His last. The veil of the temple is rent in twain, 33-38. Lastly, 39-47, we have the testimony of the centurion, the attendance of the women and the loving ministry of Joseph of Arimathea at the burial of our Lord in the tomb never contaminated
0: by man. Subdivision 3. Chapter 16. The Resurrection and Ascension. This
1: part of our evangelist is in keeping with what we have seen throughout. The Narrative Of the resurrection itself is brief, it may be divided into two parts, the first of which reads continuously with what immediately precedes it the remainder however is in different form reminding us of the first few verses of the gospel where we have an epitome of john's ministry and the temptation section 1 verses 1 to 8 the women at the sepulcher the scene at the sepulcher is vivid and suggestive the angel as a young man witnesses to the resurrection of our lord but himself they do not see We note the tenderness of the special message they were to give to Peter, lest he should be swallowed up with the thought of his denial, the fact that the Lord was risen. They were to meet him in Galilee as he had appointed. We have, however, no record of this meeting in Mark. SECTION 2 VER 9-18 THE SUMMARY OF VARIOUS APPEARINGS We have here, first, the appearing to Mary Magdalene and, as we have elsewhere noted, the fact that unbelief marked every stage in the declaration of the fact of the resurrection. Next, the visit to Emmaus is told in fewest words. Later, he comes to the twelve and upbraids them for their hardness of heart and then gives the commission, not as in the governmental gospel of Matthew, to make disciples unto the kingdom, but rather to preach the gospel to every creature. Faith, whose reality is not made but confessed by baptism, is the only condition of salvation. Signs, chiefly connected with the establishing of the New Testimony upon earth, are to follow those that believe, signs much in keeping with those wrought by our Lord when He was here and for a similar purpose. When once truth has been presented, there is no further need for the signs. It bears its own witness. The miracle is but to call attention to the truth. Section 3 Verses 19, 20, The Ascension The fact of the ascension is here recorded, not the details which we have in Luke. In briefest summary, the work of the disciples is told, a work which is but the continuation of what our Lord, the perfect servant, had entered upon. He has opened the way, has shown what a true servant and witness for God is in the face of every form of opposition and enmity, has through his death opened the way into heaven itself where he has entered, not to ignore or to forget his toiling servants here but to labour with them by the Holy Spirit in that blessed work of the Gospel which is to go on until we too shall be called up into the rest which we shall share with Him. Luke General theme, Christ as man, embracing in Himself every true human attribute, spirit, soul and body, sinless and obedient, born of a woman and yet the Son of the Highest, reaching down to every department of human life and meeting sinful man wherever he might be making known to him the gospel of God's grace and bringing him into fellowship with him all this effected by his sacrificial death and declared by his resurrection and ascension division 1 chapters 1 413 the man christ jesus division 2 chapters 414 to 1834 his ministry of the gospel of peace division 3 chapters 1835 24. The sacrificial work by which God is made known to man and man is brought to God. The similarity of these divisions to those of the Gospel of Mark cannot fail to be noticed. There, we had the servant in his more individual activities, answering somewhat to the first division of Luke, where we have the obedient man in his individuality. Next, in the second division of Mark, we had the continuance of the untiring service of the Lord in face of the ever-increasing opposition of His enemies. Here the opposition is also manifest, indeed, it comes out at the very start, but that which is prominent throughout the entire second division is the going out of the heart of God toward poor, lost man and bringing him to himself. The third division, of course, is the same in each Gospel, Though each with its characteristics peculiar to the main theme of the evangelist. We might say in a general way that in Mark, service, and in Luke, salvation are the prominent thoughts.
0: Division 1. Chapters one Four, Thirteen, The Man Christ Jesus.
1: In this first division, we have the account of the events preceding and accompanying the birth of our Lord, going back indeed to the narrative of the promise and birth of the forerunner, the period of our Lord's childhood until His public manifestation, the account of John's ministry in our Lord's baptism and sealing with the Spirit, together with his genealogy traced back to Adam, the whole closing with his temptation. All this has a distinct, personal characteristic, peculiar to our Lord Himself, rather than to the goings forth of activity which follow in the next division. Subdivision 1 CHAPTER 1. THE ANNUNCIATION This chapter gives us, beside the introduction, the events connected with the Annunciation concerning John the Baptist and the account of his birth. There is also that more wonderful Annunciation of the Incarnation of the Son of God, the most transcendent fact in all the history of the universe. Section 1. Verses 1-4, The Introduction The introductory verses of Luke are quite in contrast with those in Matthew and Mark. In the former, it was the natural Old Testament style, linking the first evangelist with the prophets and historians of the past. In Mark, it was of the briefest character, declaring the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here, it is explanatory of Luke's reasons for writing an ordered treatise upon these assured facts connected with the life of our Lord. It is addressed to the Gentile Theophilus, and a similar title to the Acts links the two books together. As has been elsewhere suggested there is an air of literary finish and thoroughness about the style which is an expression of the character of the entire book. The Spirit of God, in describing the perfect man, uses as an instrument one in closest touch with all that was
0: broadly human. Section 2 Verses 5-25 the coming of the forerunner announced. When
1: we say that Luke is the narrative of the manhood of our Lord, it must not be understood that there is any ignoring of the Jewish associations in which he was pleased to be born. Indeed this could not be, when we remember that the position of the Jewish nation was unique in the world. God had embodied his purposes with a nation, however far that nation may have drifted from his purposes. This is a beautiful and distinguishing feature of all divine truth. While distinctive, there is a breadth to it which reaches out into other domains. We have not those hard and fast lines which mark the distinctions of human logic. As in the living organism connective tissue is everywhere present, and as in the rainbow the varied hues shade into one another and blend together, so is it in God's revelation. Thus, the first two chapters are distinctively Jewish, indeed the entire narrative unnecessarily is thus colored, although the prominent thought is what we have indicated. We find, therefore, here at the outset a distinctly Jewish scene. Zacharias is a priest in one of the courses, the eighth, ordained by King David, see First Chronicles 24 verse 10. He is ministering as priest in the temple, offering the incense, a unique privilege greatly esteemed, we are told, and awarded by lot. All that is best in Judaism comes out here. The piety of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth, the solemnity of the priestly service in which he was engaged, the attitude of the waiting people outside, all afford a glimpse of the reality still left in the midst of what abounded in formalism and emptiness, as suggested by the phrase, in the days of Herod the king, times of lawless indulgence in sin with the outward show of ceremonial punctiliousness, 5-7. Similarly, in the narrative of Ruth, recording as it does events which took place during the troublous times of the judges, we find in the quiet retirement of Bethlehem the place where real faith abides. Zacharias, Jehovah has remembered, Elizabeth, my God has sworn. Their childlessness accentuates the impotence of nature, while their names would remind them of the faithfulness of God's promises. It is this, later on, that Zacharias notices in his song. How appropriate that he should be offering incense in the temple at the very time when God announces to him, through an angel, the beginnings of the fulfillment of his purposes when the true priest would appear in the true sanctuary and offer up that which shall be an eternal fragrance in the presence of God, the excellence of his own person, verses 8-11. Of the words of the angel, we need say but little, though all is full of richest meaning. The prayer of Zacharias had been heard. The fact that he had been praying suggests the attitude of the remnant of which he was an example, and the expectant longing of their hearts for deliverance. The importance attaching to the birth of John is not because of what he was, but rather that he would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, as John later declares, he was but a voice crying in the wilderness, and pointing men to the true deliverer. Twelve to seventeen. The unbelief of Zacharias reminds us of what we so constantly find throughout Scripture: God does not hide the weakness of the faith of His beloved people. This weakness explains the dumbness of the aged priest until the day when he sets his seal that God is true. How good it is to see also that God's promises are not dependent upon the strength of our faith. Section 3. Verses 26-56, The Annunciation to Mary This most blessed and solemn scene has been degraded by Rome into an excuse for the idolatry of the mother of our Lord, most foreign, we may be sure, to any thought that was in her bosom. We dare not enter upon too minute a discussion of the amazing mystery of divine love spoken of here. All eternity gazes with adoring wonder at the miracle of all miracles, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, and yet the circumstances in which that incarnation is announced are the fitting illustration of the lowliness to which he stooped. The meek acquiescence of Mary suggests that acceptance of faith which marks her out for all time as blessed amongst women in her unique position, but as the example for everyone who receives the testimony of God and bows to it. After the Annunciation, which took place between Mary and the angel alone we have 39 to 45 the expression of fellowship between the two holy women a sense of grace ever produces a desire for fellowship in the visit of Mary to Elizabeth this fellowship is most sweetly and beautifully expressed what a picture it gives us of joy of sweet companionship of adoring worship on the part of these two holy women it is at once a glimpse at remnant piety a piety which exists wherever true faith is found, and a suggestion of the theme of our gospel, the fellowship of man with God. Mary's Song Follows, 46-56 We need not be surprised that the heart should go out in worship. Indeed, the whole of this first part of Luke is fragrant with the incense symbolized in Zacharias' offering. Mary worships, Elizabeth worships, Zacharias worships, The angels from heaven worship, the shepherds worship, Simeon worships, wherever the grace of God is apprehended, worship and praise break forth. Mary's song has rightly been compared to that of Hannah. The theme is quite similar, God visits the lowly, lifting them on high, while the proud and mighty are set aside. This is again Luke's theme. How fittingly appropriate, therefore, this sweet song of the Mother of our Lord, expressing as it does, by the Spirit of God, a little prelude to those mightier harmonies which her Son and Lord was to evoke from the willing hearts of a lowly people brought into accord with the will of God by His grace. Section 4. Verses 57-66, The Birth of John This grace, Luke's theme, gives its name to the forerunner. Instead of a backward glance which the name of his Father would have suggested, Jehovah hath remembered, It is the forward glance of what is now to be brought in, John, Jehovah is gracious. Zacharias is dumb, as indeed all the Old Testament is dumb until faith sets its seal to this new revelation. When he writes, His name is John, praise bursts forth. So too, to this day, the veil is upon Israel's heart while the prophets are being read, but wherever a soul bows to the grace of God, praise bursts forth, the Old Testament
0: merges into the new. Section 5. Verses 67-80, The Song of Zacharias
1: It is just this which the prophetic song of Zacharias sets forth. The oath which God had made, Elizabeth, and the remembrance of his covenant, Zacharias, find now expression in fruitfulness in the birth of one who is going to exhibit the faithfulness of God and be the harbinger of the coming day. All is in most beautiful
0: accord here. Subdivision 2 Chapter 2 The Birth of Christ
1: We have here the narrative, touching in its simplicity, almost pathetic in its suggestions of poverty and lowliness, and yet rising into the heavens themselves to express the glory of God and His delight in man as shown in the birth of the Holy Son of God. The heart feels a desire to be associated with the worshippers here, and indeed as we enter into its blessedness we join in the homage paid to the lowly babe. Section
0: 1. Verses 1-7. The birth in Bethlehem as foretold. The proud empire of Rome,
1: mistress of the world, puts into motion its resistless machinery to carry out a simple prediction made ages before, that the son of David should be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah 5 verse 2. From the language here, it would seem that while the edict for the census was given at this time, so that Joseph in obedience to it went up to Bethlehem, the actual enrollment was not made until years later under Cyrenius, the governor of Syria. Nothing is of first importance, except that which fulfills the purposes of God. Those purposes are connected with the lowly babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, rather than with the proud emperor
0: in his palace over the seas. Section 2. Verses 8-20, The Angels and the Shepherds
1: From earliest times, the calling of the shepherd had been associated with faith. Doubtless the sacrificial thought is prominent here, and that tender care, reminding us of the true shepherd of his sheep. Abel, Jacob and David were all shepherds and men of faith. These nameless shepherds here clearly belong to the same company, and to such heaven will make known its wondrous secret. The angels perform much the same office that the star did in Matthew. That was the light of heaven shining afar and bringing distant worshippers to the babe in Bethlehem. This is the chorus of heaven making known to those near at hand the birth of the son of David. The two lines cross each other without confusion. The praise of the angels gives the twofold theme of this gospel. It is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth peace in which that glory expresses itself in goodwill to men resulting in everlasting peace. It is fitting that this truth should be proclaimed in the shepherds ears for only by sacrifice could it be made good. Section 3 verses 21 to 39 the presentation in the temple. Here everything prescribed in the law is fulfilled We need hardly say that no defilement needed to be put away in connection with the birth of our blessed Lord, but just as in His baptism and in His death, He stands as the representative of His people, we may say that at the very time of His presentation to God, the witness of the sacrifice of Himself is given in order that His people may be presented and cleansed in the presence of God, 21-24. Simeon represents the remnant, as also did the others of whom we have spoken. He had reached the time, before he should depart in peace, when the Lord's Christ should appear. His life therefore passes out of view in the sweet melody which his faith makes, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, 25-32. Turning to the parents, as the Spirit of God in grace associates Joseph with the mother, Simeon pronounces the blessing upon them, but foretells that cross which should reveal many hearts, and the sword which should pierce her own. Thus, at his very birth, the shadow of Calvary is seen, not in gloom however, but showing the changeless purpose of love which no difficulty can thwart and which even death cannot quench, 33-35. The widowed Anna joins in this praise. Most touching is it to see these aged ones, the parents of John, Simeon and Anna the fires of nature all quenched, earthly hopes all vanished, breaking forth into joy, for the fountain of perpetual youth has sprung up in their hearts and is even now
0: flowing forth. Section 4. Verses 40-52, The Growth of the Child and His Obedience.
1: This early part of our Lord's life closes with the account of the scene in the temple where the evident consciousness of His relationship to the Father is present with Him while coupled with perfect naturalness as a child that hungered for knowledge. We need to keep both thoughts in our minds, whether we are able fully to harmonize them or not, for in both together is the true
0: conception of the person of Christ.